Holy, holy, holy. Merciful and mighty. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Let's consider the reality of that fact this morning as we look once again into Amos in chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, raising that which is fallen, part 2. And um, as I mentioned before, I, I, I believe that the subject that we tackle this morning is a subject that is only understood by those who qualify for the Ephesians chapter 2 definition of receiving the gift of faith that is from God and not of themselves. And therefore, while this topic could be spoke of at great length over the course of many months and still would not be justly served, the reality is, is the only people that will understand it are those that have already received it or are currently being called to possess it. And so that being the case, I'm, I'm not going to try to do that which I do not believe I can do. But instead, like the apostles that we're going to see today in Acts, we'll trust the Holy Spirit to do it on the behalf of the Lord who gives it. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. This is the definitive statement in the book of Amos. As we've looked for months where a very partial God shows no partiality for there is indeed an anger that comes forth out of love that is stronger than any that comes forth out of hate. The Lord shakes. He shakes his people. In Amos chapter 9, verse 9, he says, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, and will do it as no one, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. And all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Those who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Last week we looked extensively at the manner in which the booth, literally the thicket, the pole barn of David has fallen. If you look through the text, you will find that it is Israel, the northern kingdom, that falls first, as is recorded here in the book of Amos, but Judah, the southern kingdom, is a very close second. Following just a couple of generations later, as is recorded by the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Sennacherib and the Assyrian horde comes south through northern Jerusalem, destroying all of Samaria all at once and destroying every single walled city in northern Judah until being halted by nothing less than the angel of the Lord himself outside of the gates of Jerusalem. 
Now I would have you note that when you consider Scripture and the way that it is ordered, it is not ordered chronologically. It is ordered by the type of text that is written. And so I got a question last week and somebody came to me and they said I was confused because we were we were in Amos, which is, you know, right here. And then we're quoting out of first and second Kings and we're quoting out of Daniel and all of these books that are back here. The reality is is that Scripture is ordered according to its type of literature and not by the chronological order that it came in. Now, if you've been here for a long time, and it would have to be a long time, for about 16 years, Mark has been teaching in his Sunday school class chronologically through Scripture. And so you'll notice it doesn't go in the order that the books are placed in in the Bible, but it goes in the order by which the events actually happen. Now, the reality is, is this. I look around this room and it's crazy to me. But this is the reality is that most of us weren't here 16 years ago. <laughs> and so that might be a little lost on some of us. Amos was writing roughly at the same time that Jeremiah was writing. He was speaking to a people in which destruction was immediately at hand knowing that a people just south of them was going to see the same things within a couple of generations. And yet in the midst of all of this, there is a promise that was given to the house of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, if I can back off just for a moment, I would like us to stop and appreciate I would like us to stop and appreciate ageless grace. I preached a sermon on it years ago. The choir master wrote a song about it years ago. What we are experiencing here today connects us back to the rest of the image bearers of God all the way to Adam. It's a big deal. This is a big deal. And that's where we're going to get here to in a minute is I foretold this from of old. There was a promise given to David. And even though the men that came after him thought that promise only belonged to a very, well, the crazy thing is, is they were right and they were wrong all at the same time. They thought it belonged to a very specific line. And in that, they were right. They misunderstood what the line was actually going to be. They thought it was by blood. And that's the crazy thing. It was by blood. It just wasn't by blood inheritance in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 David's heart is set man it is set on pleasing God and he desires from the bottom of his soul 
to build a house for the Lord. And it is a good thing for him to desire that. And he asks the prophet, shall I do this thing? And the word of the Lord comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 10 and says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And so David wanted to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord looked at him and said, It is good for you to want this, but it is insufficient for you to do such a thing. The only thing that is sufficient is that I will build you a house. You see, that's the way it works with an omnipotent God. You cannot give to Him. You can only receive The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish your kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now if if you've been a student of prophecy... You understand that in the prophetic word that there is a what what we call today a, a near view and a far view. There is something that is being said that is going to come to fruition within the time frame of the audience at hand. And this is necessary for you to know that the prophet is a prophet of God and not a false prophet. And then, having proved himself, there is a far view. That which is down the road. That thing that is being spoken of that we read about last week. That you can see but is not near. Paul said it this way speaking about the prophecy to David. In Romans chapter 9, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, Blessed forever. Amen. The promise that was made to David when he said, Lord, I've got a ton of gold. I've got a ton of jewels. I've got the Philistines on the run and you've done all that for me so what I'm going to do is build you a house because I'm sitting over here in what they literally call the house of Lebanon because of the cedar it's made out of. So I'm going to build you a house. And he looks down at him and goes, big boy, you ain't building me nothing. 
I'll make you a house. I'll make you something. You want to see something nifty? It's not when a king who has a lot of stuff is able to organize it to make something spectacular out of his stuff. It's when a God looks down on a man made out of dirt and says, I will make you something. The manifestation of that promise is recorded by Paul in Romans chapter 7, or 4, verses 7 through 12. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? It is, only, is it only for the, the sons and daughters of David? Is it only for the sons and daughters of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now that's a mouthful. But Paul is just really setting the table because then he gets to the point that he's making and says this, the purpose... Now look, anytime in Scripture you see that statement, the purpose, but especially when Paul's saying it, then you need to pay attention. Because Paul will write 15 pages to get to the purpose. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. There is a reality that is supernatural in nature that is occurring in the midst of the children of Abraham that are children not by blood and children not by oath, but children by faith that occurs before a physical manifestation that is then testified to in a physical manifestation. And the testimony is awesome. You need it. That's why there's a tank. But it's not the reality. The reality is something that God Himself is doing before. It's a reality that He's taken the thicket and the pole barn of David that couldn't even hold itself up and collapsed and is raising it up and making it a house. In Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, He says it like this, For behold, I will command... And shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. 
All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. And you go, where is the hope in that? And the hope is here. In that day. In that day. I will raise up the booth. Or raise up the thicket of David that is fallen, that is literally just imploded on itself. I mean, good grief, if you go back and look at the chronology and you read First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, what you will find out is the northern of kingdom of Israel had not one righteous king, not one. Judah could barely scrape a handful together after Solomon. And yet, even as they implode upon themselves, in that day, a very particular day, a day if you were fortunate enough to be here last Sunday night, You heard one of our very own children very passionately long for. It was awesome. (laughs) Rocked my world. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. All the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And so you look through the chronology of Scripture and the build-up, the cause from... From the moment that Jeroboam the first raises up this pair of golden calves and says, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim who led you out of Egypt. If you look at the events that, that lead to that, and then the events that come after that, and all the prophecy about those events, the reality is, is it takes up the bulk of your Bible. Isn't that crazy? Isn't it crazy that the events that take up the bulk of the Bible are some of the least taught from the pulpit? How crazy is that? What does it look like? What does it look like when it falls? What does it look like when he raises it back up? The reality is, is if we just stopped here in Amos, we would fall dreadfully short. But the Holy Spirit speaks not only to a man, it speaks to his men. And so, nearly a millennia later, not quite, but nearly a millennia later, it will be the apostles, the men of God that followed the promised Christ himself that will quote these very words. And they quote it in Acts chapter 15 in verses 1 through 21. 
And so, you know, you got to trying to do better about making sure the chronology is clear here, right? You got to fast forward now. Nearly 800 years. All that was foretold in Amos, all that was foretold by Jeremiah, all that was, well, not all that was foretold, most of what was foretold has already come to fruition. We're still waiting on some of it, right? It's come to fruition. And the Christ who is going to rebuild the house of Jacob rebuild the house of David is is at hand he's come he's he's lived he's lived a sinless life he has made the perfect sacrifice to make propitiation for his people he has died of his own will and he was raised again on the third day and he sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father, having walked into the temple in heaven and placed his own blood on the mercy seat to buy the souls of his people. And so having done this and been clearly seen, it says that some men came down from Judea and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Ah, nothing like a legalist. Now, the problem with legalism is that if they're good legalists, and by good I don't mean righteous, I mean effectual. If they're good legalists, what they do is invert the standard of Scripture, which would say there is a spiritual reality that is testified to in a physical reality. They invert that and say that if you do this physically, it will produce a spiritual reality. That's the lie. And that's why it's so slick, because it's the same two components. They've just flipped them. And so here they come. And they came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When what they should have been saying is if you're in the midst of a Jewish population and you are saved, you should be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I'm going to have you note here that dissension and division is two different things. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders we're gathered together to consider this matter. Now, 
I'm not going to preach on church polity this morning. There's a report that's going to talk a lot about polity that's coming. But I want you to note here that just being a believer doesn't mean that you're always necessarily right. So there were legitimate believers that rose up and spoke poorly. And so the people of God came together, the elders, the apostles, and they considered what was being said based off of the totality of the Word of God, and they came to a decision. And at that point in time, what you can either do is you can get on board with the Word of God or you can separate from it. And apparently in the New Testament church, some did both. Some got on board and some some didn't. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Okay, so just for a moment, check this out. You've got Peter, the rock upon whom his confession the church would be built, And you've got Paul and you've got Barnabas, the most influential theologian in the history of the kingdom, and one of the most influential missionaries in the history of the kingdom. And they stand up. And where you would expect Paul to go into a monologue like he does, let's say, in the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians or the entirety of the book of Romans or the first two chapters of Colossians where you would expect him to go into this doctrinal monologue where he is telling them the the how and the what for by which all of these things work, he doesn't do any of that. You've got Peter who, who, who walked with Christ side by side, who walked on the water with him, was there at the transfiguration, saw the spirit of Moses, These are the guys that you would think Barnabas has, I mean, they, they, have, they have evangelized the Gentile world. These are the guys that you would think would stand up and lay down the theology and say, this is how it's going to work. And they didn't do any of that. They said, this is what we saw him do. 
And then, crazily enough, it is James. His half-brother that watched him from the beginning and was not on board initially. (laughs) It's not the great theologians that lay down, here's how it works, boys. It's the guy that saw it with his own eyes. That's what's so awesome about it. It's like, the great theologians were like, well, we, we just, this is what happened and this is what we saw. And then you get James. Don't ever pull the sword until you're ready to swing it. After they finished speaking, James replied, This is a guy that's done his homework because unlike most of us, he had read his minor prophets. (laughs) He knows what the Lord told Amos. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. It wasn't... The perfectly groomed and look, look, man. I, I'm not going to try my. I'm not going to try to hide my bias. I'm I'm a Paulinian guy. I love me some Paul. But on this day, it wasn't the perfectly groomed, fully Hebrew educated Gentile. Genius intellect that brought it to the table. Him and Barnabas and Peter just stood there, stood there and said, We saw it, that's what he did. It was James that said, This is what was foretold from of old. It's not new. Oh, it's new in time. It's not new eternally. This is what he's always been doing, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. There's a reason that the mass bulk of the Old Testament was involved telling the story of the rise, the fall, and then the resurrection of the house of David. The gospel is the promise rising of the house that the Lord made to David himself. 
what we're doing is not new. When, when you come in here in the mornings and you see all the kids on the front row and, and, and Alvin speaking to them with what, with, with what our Sunday school teachers are doing in each one of these individual rooms, with what David is doing with our youth, with what Mark and Jim are doing with our adults, this isn't new. It's ancient. The crazy thing is, is if you go back to Amos, verses 11 through 12, it doesn't just, it's not just referenced by what will come in Acts. It's also referenced in Obadiah. And now... Nobody quotes Obadiah. We're going to quote it today. So if you, if you, if you, all you got to do is turn like one page. If you're in Amos 9, it's like one page over. Right there. Such a small book that it only has one chapter. Right? So you don't have Obadiah chapter 1, verse 1. You just have Obadiah 1 or 2 or 3 or 4 all the way down to 21. And so... In verse 19 through 21, the prophet, speaking to the same topic that is being spoke about in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its branches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom, which is the kingdom and the nation that came out of the sons, not of Jacob, but of Esau. And so, if you know your biblical history here, and I think one of the things that's been really good for us about the Minor Prophets is it's forcing us to, to do that, then Abraham beget Isaac, and Isaac beget Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was... Not the guy you would want to have a cup of coffee with. Esau was. Jacob was not the guy you want to go fishing with. Esau was. Turns out, when looking down upon totally depraved men and deciding according to his own heart, the Lord decided there would be more glory in choosing the one you don't want to go fishing with than choosing the one you do. And so he chose Jacob. And Jacob was a loser. And so was Esau. He just didn't look like as much of one. Jacob was a loser until the Lord changed him and made him something different so that he wasn't. And Esau, unfortunately, he allowed to continue to be a relatively cool guy according to the standards of men. In Obadiah chapter 
1, well, like I said, not chapter 1. In verse 19, the prophet speaks to the same thing that Amos is speaking to. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. So the Negev is a portion of Israel. And these Israelites, remember these ones that are according to Abraham by faith and not by blood, they shall possess Mount Esau and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines and they shall possess the lands of Ephraim and the land of Samaria and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who her in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev and saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, this is one, not the only, this is one of the reasons that in the introduction to this I say we could be here for six months. Because if you dig into history and start breaking down all of these kingdoms and all of these regions and all of these peoples, that takes a month, month and a half on its own. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So there is a statement here where possession and ownership of the kingdom belongs to God himself. But there is a means by which that possession is being manifest in which there are these saviors that go up to Mount Zion, and in doing so, rule over the Mount of Esau, and all of this falls under the umbrella of the Lord's doing. So we've often said, in the sovereignty of God, He ordains not only the ends, but the means by which they are achieved. They will rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The reality is, is when it comes to the chosen people of God, in that day, overcoming those that are against God in league with lawlessness, the reality is that no survivor of Esau shall escape. So if you rewind just a little bit, if you look back in, in, in Obadiah, just back three verses, and instead of starting in verse, um, in, in verse you know, 19, let's go, well, four verses, let's go back to verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. 
Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those that escape. This church was named nearly 150 years before I was a member of it, but they picked a good one. In Mount Zion, there shall be those that escape, and it shall be holy. It shall be different. Literally, it shall be different. Set apart. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. The house of Esau, stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So the Lord has spoken. And in that day, when he restores the the pole barn, the thicket, the, the, the tent of David that has fallen and makes it a house that will rule forever. In that day, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. And one of those things is that the enemies of God, Esau in particular, will be dominated by the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph so that there is not one that remains. Now, before that rubs anybody the wrong way, I want you to note that according to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, in verses... 15 through 17, Esau absolutely positively had it coming. You know why? Because Esau is an ungodly and unholy man. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 15, it is written, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So here you have when God is reestablishing, when he is raising up the house of David that has fallen, he is raising it up with saviors to make it holy. But Esau is unholy. They're different. He is common. Why? He sold his birthright. He sold his birthright. You know what his birthright was? His birthright was this promise that came later to David. It had already been given to Abraham. It had been given to Isaac. And it was his for the taking. And he sold it for a bowl of beans. The promise 
that was the, the, the message of the saviors that would come to Mount Zion and say, this is the Christ that is the promise that was made to David. This is the one in which Abraham believed. And he said, you know what that's worth to me? Lunch. God said, I hate him. I hate him for what he did. The glory of an immortal Savior choosing to die to buy propitiation for those that are not worth buying. He spit in his face. And so, the Lord says, Esau is my enemy. Not one of the survivors will escape. You know what that means, right? That means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come through with the overwhelming scourge and wipe them out. And, you know, just based off the numbers, there's always going to be a few that fall out of the sieve. Except for I'm not going to let any fall out of the sieve. None of the survivors of the overwhelming scourge, I'll kill all of them. Why? Because Esau was a godless man. The problem with that, if you just leave it right there, you go, well, man, Esau was the enemy of God. Yeah, guess what, man? So am I. Yeah, that's not. So was I. And if you're born again, so were you. And if you're not born again, so are you. For the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The reality is, is that every single one of us that is saved today can say that we were saved when we were the enemies of God. We weren't his friends, we weren't his allies. We weren't on board pragmatically. We weren't even thinking about brokering a deal. And if you think, let me tell you something, if you think, if you truly believe at the bottom of your heart that somehow you looked at God and said, you know what, I think that's a good offer, I'll take it. Friend, you need to check your salvation because what happened to you if you were really saved was you hated him until the moment that you loved him. So here's Esau. Boy, he looks good on the surface, man. He's a godless man. And the Lord says, In that day when I restore the house of David, not one will survive. The thing is, is when I go to Romans chapter 5, 
I can't figure out the difference between the house of David and the house of Esau. Oh, I can see the difference after God works. After God affects them, after effectual grace is applied, after the gift of faith is given. Oh, you can see all sorts of difference after that. But when I look at them before, when I look at them before, I can't see a spit bit of difference between David and Esau before grace. And so here's what's wild. You got Obadiah, Acts, and Amos. They're all speaking to exactly the same things. You got Obadiah, this statement that not one of the survivors of Esau will survive. I'll kill them all. They get away with it the first time. They won't get away with it the second time. You've got James and Acts speaking about the way the Gentiles are being brought in. And then in Amos, in verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. All the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this, if none of the survivors of Esau shall escape, how in the world is there a remnant of Edom? You know, it's crazy. It's, it, it's the parallel Hebrew to the Greek that you see Paul use in the book of Romans when he talks about the remnant among Israel and it literally means residue. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. How is it, how is it that you can have a statement from one prophet by the Holy Spirit that not one survivor shall escape and another statement by the Holy Spirit speaking about the exact same event, saying that there is a remnant amongst Edom that will come out and they will be possessed by the people of Israel. How do you do that? I can tell you how liberal scholars will approach it. How liberal scholars will approach it is they will point at point at it as an inherent as an inherent contradiction in the text. That's what they'll say. They'll say, "See, here is an example where Scripture is saying two mutually exclusive things that cannot go together." They haven't read far enough. What they don't realize is while they're in Acts chapter 15, it might have been James's day to lay down the heavy theology. 
it wasn't only his to lay down. Paul would say in Romans chapter 4, one of the most profound statements about the gospel. Guys, I got to tell you, my heart's breaking over this deal. Like I'm, I've been bothered about it for a while. It's, it's really getting to me. It is in, in, in the more we do this SBC research committee, the more it's bothering me. The fact that we want to sell the gospel as this thing that hey listen you 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 don't want to die and go to hell flames are hot you want to die and go to heaven where the streets are gold and the gates are pearl you you, you want to see your your mom and your dad and your grandma and your grandpa and so Jesus is good because he can save you from this and provide you with that. I was telling Mark this morning, you know, it's... Lord has been humbling me a lot lately by causing me to run into ministerial issues that I can't just tell people to stop being a jerk. Like that's not enough. There has to be something more. It's not enough just to say don't be fleshly. Be like this. There has to be something more. And here's what it is. It's the way that none of Esau will survive, and yet there will be a remnant of Esau that belongs to Israel. One of the most glorious things that has ever been said about the gospel is in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Where, the, where, where the, the apostle says, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham as the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and, man, if you want to highlight it, I would. And calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, 
He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he was told, so shall your offspring be. And so they are. And they are because he is the God who calls into existence that which does not exist. He is the God that looks at a bunch of Edomites that are the descendants of a godless and unholy man and says, none of you are going to be left. And you know why? Because most of you are going to go the same way that your father went. And you're going to be unholy and godless, but there is a remnant among you that I'm going to do something to that changes them and they are going to remain and be possessed by the promise of my covenant people Israel. And you go, well, how in the world can you say if they're all going away that some can remain because the God that causes things to exist that did not exist makes them something else so that they cease to be identified as the sons and daughters of Esau instead become by faith identified as the sons and daughters of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if you want to see a pit, so that's, that's at a national level. There is, I know there has been more and more Matthew references here lately because I'm ramping up for Matthew so it's kind of in my head if you want to see the an example on a personal level of this doctrine being manifest you see it no clearer than in Matthew chapter 15 man I love it I've preached this at least once before, maybe twice. We're just going to use it as an example today. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Historically, most recently a rough place. (laughs) It was good once upon a time. Hadn't been in a long time at this point. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Isn't that something? How do you think it is that some Tyrrhenian Canaanite woman can have any expectation in the house of David that has been fallen at this point for nearly a millennium. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us specifically that most people thought the Jews were idiots for having any hope in the blood of Abraham or David at this point. As a matter of fact, one of of the reasons that the Lord said that he was going to do what he was going to do was because all of the Gentiles were laughing that he couldn't maintain this thing. 
And yet, here's this woman, man, and she's this Tyrrhenian, Canaanite, like... (laughs) And she has some kind of hope in the son of David. Now, the hope she has is not the hope of salvation. Not yet. It's coming. This is the foretaste of glory divine. And the reason we know it's not is because what Christ is going to say to her next, what you see here is what Christ was talking about in the book of John when he spoke to the apostles and said, you know, here's the deal. The Holy Spirit's coming, and when he gets here, you'll know him because he's already with you, and at that point in time will be in you. So so here is a woman who the Holy Spirit is not yet in, but he is affecting her. He is operating on her. And so she comes and she has faith. But the faith that she has, it's probably fair to say she has hope. The hope that she has is not sufficient unto salvation. Mom and dad, this is a big deal for you as you deal with your children that are coming to Christ. It's a big deal. Because there is a legitimate means in which a a person can, can proclaim a statement about the nature of who Christ is and can desire that which he will provide when they have not yet come to salvation. And this woman is proof positive of it. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She's desperate. He did not answer her a word. He did not answer a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Now, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I want you to consider here, I really, really want you to consider, because I'm telling you, I'm considering it. I want you to consider the way that he presents the gospel to this woman because it is an uncomfortable and dangerous way to present the gospel If someone came up to you and, and, and cried out in the name of Christ for help and you did not answer them, I got to tell you, as your pastor, I would be up in your business. Like, what in the world, man? Somebody comes looking for the gospel, you need to tell them. Unless 
you were absolutely positively directed by the Spirit of God Himself. And if you were, it would show itself, which is exactly what happens here. And so she comes to him, and you talk about contrary to any kind of like seeker-driven model about what this gospel looks like that is going to look at Edom and go, you, you won't have one survivor, and yet I'm going to bring a remnant because I'm the guy that calls things into existence that don't exist. He doesn't even speak to her. She cries out his name. She cries out for mercy. She calls him Lord. She calls him the son of David. You won't even speak to her. Now this is what I mean by this being dangerous. Because man, if you blow this, if me or you take this into our hands and we blow it, Man, we've blown it. But the fact of the matter is, is what he is doing for her is the most loving thing that can possibly be done. Even though it is certainly the most difficult. And the fact that he blew her off the first time isn't even where it gets hard at. The disciples, I mean, she wouldn't quit, man. She's blubbering and bawling and crying out and they're uncomfortable and they want that to end and so they they say man if you're not gonna if you're not gonna do anything for her i mean look they've seen him do it at this point in time we're in chapter 15 it's not like they haven't seen him do it i mean this guy tells the storms to stop they stop this guy feeds Thousands and thousands and thousands of people off a little boy's lunch. He cast out demons. If you're not going to do it, then just tell her to go away because it's very uncomfortable. I wish I was more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I didn't come for you, Canaanite. Tyrrhenian, Sidonian, whatever kind of mutt you are, I didn't come for you. I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered her, He's going to push back. He doesn't speak to her. He dismisses her. And then when she pleads with him, he pushes back against her again. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now we're no longer talking about a Canaanite. We're not talking about a Tyrrhenian or a Sidonian. You have now been qualified by the creator and the maintainer of the universe as a dog. For which I did not come. 
there will not be one survivor escapes amongst the house of Esau. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus Christ is not a liar. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so when he speaks and says, you're the dog that I didn't come for, that is a true statement. That's not hyperbola. That's not, he's not trying to provoke a response. That's a true statement. When he looks at her and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and you are a dog that I did not come for. That's exactly what he means. Man, I I wish that we would quit selling the gospel short. We want everybody to feel so secure and feel so affirmed and feel so okay that we take the most glorious miracle that has ever been and we water it down to a choice that can be made by men. And that's not what it is. There will be none of Edom that survives. You know why? Because he will make them not Edom anymore. He looks at her and he says, I didn't come for the dogs. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the scraps. The most miraculous moment of this woman's life isn't recorded. It exists in the gap between the period at the end of verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28. And then Jesus answered her. O woman, great is your faith. Now look, just literally 30 seconds ago, when she called him Lord and Son of David, her faith was not great at that moment. It wasn't. It wasn't enough. Her faith was not great at that moment. It was not the gift of God. It was a faith that came from somewhere else. It was a faith that came from what she had seen and what she had heard. And it was a hope based more on desperation than expectation. Man, and that's, guys, look, New New Testament, the the faith that accompanies salvation is, is no doubt, no doubt has its basis in desperation, but when it accompanies salvation, it is not desperate, it is not a blind leap. It is the expectation that God will do what he says he will do. And so the faith she had before, not sufficient. She makes the proclamation. She says the stuff. Uh, uh, oh Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Please, I'm a pitiful subject. My daughter is possessed by a demon. Have mercy on me. Psst. She won't shut up. She keeps crying out. Man, if you call and he doesn't respond, keep crying out. I didn't come for you. I came for the lost ship of Israel, not the dogs. And then in the 
pause between verse 27 and verse 28. The God who calls into existence that which does not exist called a sheep into existence from a dog. Not one will survive from Edom. They will either die by the sword or they will be made into something they previously were not. That's the gospel. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. Or as John will say in Revelation chapter 7, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes, the peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all of this is because in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, who declares the Lord who does this. This is what he does. He's been doing it from of old. He is doing it even today. My prayer is that you would um, my prayer is that you would come and that you would be just as stubborn as the Canaanite woman. Just don't take no for an answer. Because the reality is if you have the motivation to ask and to ask intently, it's because the God that calls into existence that which does not exist is already calling desire to existence in you. That's why. She gives you incredible confidence. Dive in. Grab it with two hands as much as you can get. One day. One day. He will look at you and say, Well done good and faithful servant. There's a whole lot more there than that. Let's pray.